It's Tuesday, November 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Big science news surfaced on Monday when a Chinese researcher claimed that he helped make the world's first genetically edited babies. Twin girls born this month named Lulu and Nana. They had their DNA altered to have the ability to resist possible future infection with HIV. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us for these claims and also the backlash. Many say that this is human experimentation and not ethically or morally defensible. Next, Big Space News also made headlines as NASA's Mars InSight lander successfully touched down on the red planet. InSight is on a mission to investigate the planet's interior for clues on how rocky planets, including Earth, formed 4 billion years ago. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for the big news and why it matters. Finally, big economic news as General Motors will cut up to 14,000 workers and put five plants up for possible closure as it will abandon many of its car models and restructure the company to focus more on autonomous and electric vehicles. Daniel Lippmann, co-author of the Politico Playbook, joins us to discuss the impact of these cutbacks and how President Trump has responded. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. When Lulu and Lala was just a single cell, this surgery removed the doorway through which HIV entered to infect people. A few days later, we checked how the gene surgery went. The result, the surgery worked safe. Joining us now is Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed news reporter. A Chinese researcher claimed that he helped make two of the world's first genetically edited babies. They were twin girls born this month. Their names are Lulu and Nana. And uh, he used this new CRISPR tool, which we've been hearing a lot about lately. What are we learning about the twins and why this was done in the first place? My science editor said this was the biggest science news this year. So it definitely is a big deal and also about the way it was done. So this researcher edited these two embryos when they were three and five days old. And he did that to be able to thwart off the HIV or AIDS virus, because as this researcher said, their dad had the virus. And so, you know, it was more about preventing, saving their kids from potentially being born with with this virus. So that was kind of the whole premise behind this very controversial experiment. The researcher said that this is a big problem in China. So that's why he wanted to tackle this. And And in a lot of developing countries, yeah, you know, he, he did say that it you know, people don't get jobs or they're turned away from, you know, their communities for having this. So it, it is, a, you know, a public health crisis. Yeah. And it's not to cure or prevent the inherited disease, but the ability to resist possible future infection of this. Let's talk about in the United States, it is illegal to do this type of gene editing. China is not the case. That's why he did this. But there's a lot of backlash to this, including from the university where he works. He's currently on leave there, but even they are launching an investigation now into what was being done. Right. Yeah. It crosses a lot of ethical boundaries for many major scientists. So it was a huge, it erupted overnight because it was, you know, Monday in China. So it really just like exploded overnight here. And the reason why it is so controversial is because it could have really unintended dangerous health effects 
or damage their DNA, and then those kids might pass on this damaged DNA and just the ramifications, like, it's just so unknown, like, what editing genes can mean for future generations. And it's also, it kind of goes into this whole, like, designer babies, like, does right. it open the door for parents to be able to, like, design their kids before they're even really people? And then it poses the question, like, what right do we have to edit our own species? And yeah, it's long yarn unravels. The big worry is that if you edit the gene now, you could pass on those edited things and basically change the genetic code of humans further on down the line. Uh, All these unintended consequences, things you don't know. That's the big worry there. Let's talk a little bit about how he did this, because as I said, he he didn't do this in conjunction with the university that he works for. He was kind of secretive about this, only announcing now after the babies were born exactly what was going on. The couple that got pregnant, it happened through normal IVF procedures. The father had HIV, the mother did not. They take the sperm out, they clean it, they infuse it to the egg, and they create the embryo. And then, as you said, three to five days later is when they use the CRISPR tool to edit those genes. Yeah, so they disabled a gene called the CCR5 when the twins were three to five day old embryos. And so that is kind of like, as he described it, like a doorway where the HIV virus can potentially enter. So he, they just kind of removed it and that would make them immune. And then after that, they waited a few days and then they watched the embryos just to make sure they were still healthy. And once they deemed them that they were, they put the embryos into the their mother Grace's uterus and then just like continued to monitor her pregnancy. And it was a healthy pregnancy and she gave birth to the twins earlier this month. And he actually recruited this couple along, I think with like six others. I think he was working with seven from a Beijing-based AIDS advocacy group. And according to the AP, they edited 16 out of 22 embryos and 11 were used in six attempted implants. And then this was like the first pregnancy. And so the way that this kind of came about was they put some of their research online and then MIT's technology review noticed this. It definitely came about in like a very bizarre, it's seemingly secretive way. It hasn't been verified yet. You know, it wasn't submitted to a journal. so Experts couldn't review it. Like he's kind of the only one who's saying that this happened. It's right. like no one really knows yet if it's true and they haven't checked his work. Yeah, there was a U.S. scientist that said he took part in some of that work. That U.S. scientist had previously worked with a Chinese scientist, so they, you know, they knew each other. They had a relationship. But as you said, they, nothing has been confirmed yet. They have to go back and double check all the work. Going back to kind of these uh, the ethical standards on this, you know, a lot of people are saying that it's not fully clear if some of these couples fully understood the purpose and the potential risks and benefits from this because some of the consent forms from the project were labeled AIDS vaccine development. So it it was kind of murky wording for the couples and and whether they understood what what they were getting into. Even for like scientists, like that community, it's still incredibly murky and very divisive because as we were mentioning earlier, no one really knows the potentially harmful genetic changes that this could make. And there is really scant data overall in from CRISPR and like his team. So it is a little concerning and also just totally wild to to think about that this is, this was just kind of happening on the side. This CRISPR tool, this gene editing tool has been gaining more notoriety in recent years and its effectiveness and how easy, I mean, so to speak, it is to, to use this tool. 
And very well, this could be the biggest science story of the year if this proves to be true. Yeah. And also, you know, what what does that mean? And should scientists have the ability to do this? I think in 2016, the director of the NIH was very adamant about the fact that he doesn't think that scientists anywhere should be able to have that ability because as we were talking about earlier, like, you know, he he was saying kind of like, what right do we as humans to be able to go in and really edit our species? And when did we get to that point? And I think that's like a, a very large question that ethically we should be talking about. For his part, the Chinese researcher did say, I feel a strong responsibility that it is not just to make a first, but also to make it an example. And he said that society will decide what to do next. And that this is going to cause a ton of discussion over what to do next. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me. Increasing uh, the likelihood uh, of humanity to actually land uh, on Mars with this amazing uh, vehicle that is out there ready to land uh, that will, again, transform our knowledge. Touchdown confirmed. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Cheers erupted at JPL in Pasadena, California, as the Mars InSight lander landed onto Mars. It braved a perilous descent through the thin Martian atmosphere to land on a flat part of Mars. What do we know about this new lander and what it's going to be doing on the planet? Assuming that the craft is completely healthy, meaning that the solar array is deployed so that it can get power and that it wasn't damaged in any way, then it's going to be doing something that no other NASA or otherwise probe has done on Mars. It's not looking for what you'd think it would be looking for. It's not looking for evidence of life. It's not looking for aliens. That might be a disappointment, but it's actually pretty cool. So it's drilling down deep into Mars's interior and trying to look for clues as to how Mars formed as a planet, which would give us clues as to how a number of other planets in our solar system, including Earth, may have formed and evolved over many thousands of years. From what they know about the evolution of Mars, they think that there's going to be a lot of clues that they can glean just from drilling down into it. It's going to take samples and basically store it in a compartment within the structure. The lander obviously is not returning to Earth. It doesn't have the fuel or the boosters to get off the planet. So it really requires either another lander to come and retrieve those samples or what may be coming next, which is human, possibly depending on what Elon Musk timeline of the day you believe <laughs> right. or what NASA's <laughs> timeline may end up being. It's not actually that far-fetched right now for us to talk about, well, maybe one of the things that the first people on Mars might want to do is to go to something like this and retrieve the samples that it collected. NASA spent about $814 million on this, but it was also a joint effort with France and Germany spending about $180 million to help uh, build the main instruments. A lot of the times projects like this are portrayed as American projects. But most of the time, scientific endeavors like this are almost never, at least these days, are are almost never just one country. So, you know, we may spend the lion's share for a spacecraft like this, but 
the Europeans are kicking in a good amount and are providing specialized instrumentation for the payload. So for certain equipment that they need to drill down or analyze rock samples that they're getting or work a camera, that sort of thing, that is something that they're doing in partnership with our European partners. Another thing that's kind of cool about this mission is they did this really interesting, intricately timed dance where they launched two CubeSats, which are extremely small satellites. CubeSats are being launched by everybody from Silicon Valley companies to school groups launching CubeSats that go out via NASA rockets or SpaceX or someone else. These are the first two CubeSats to ever go into deep space. And their function was to be there at the exact moment that the Mars lander landed so that it could act as a radio relay to send a signal back to Earth that lets us know that the InSight lander landed successfully and is in relatively decent shape. It takes about just over eight minutes to send stuff back from Mars to Earth right now. Yeah, and these two CubeSats weren't setting up into a permanent orbit around Mars. They were really there just for this moment. Wow. It's kind of cool. It it established a new record in terms of uh, CubeSats and CubeSat capability. I mean, it's fun. Space news, this stuff is always interesting. But as you kind of alluded to earlier, Mars is that next frontier that everybody is aiming for. NASA has in orbit the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, Mars Odyssey. I think the European Space Agency has a couple things there. The Indian Space Research Organization has something. And then 2020 is just going to get even busier with another rover supposedly to land there. The European Space Agency and Russia, again, are going to launch stuff. So Mars is the subject of a lot of scrutiny right now. It has been for a long time. There was not one on the webcast today. There was one NASA engineer who said that there had been 17 landing attempts on Mars. Ten of them have been successful. And in terms of landing and operating uh, scientific equipment, so rovers or landers on Mars, the United States is the only country on Earth that has successfully done this, and we've done it multiple times. So now other countries which are increasingly looked at as players in space, particularly India and China, are both aiming there. And the European Space Agency is, is incredibly capable as well. I think that as well as Russia does in terms of transporting astronauts and their folks to the International Space Station, I think that some commentators might be a little bit more skeptical that they'll succeed this time in landing on Mars just based on their past record. But I don't know, they've got to have better luck sometime in doing this. <laughs> Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They say the uh, Chevy Cruze is not selling well. I say, well, then get a car that is selling well and put it back in. I was very tough. I spoke with her when I heard they were closing. And I said, you know, this country's done a lot for General Motors. You better get back in there soon. That's Ohio. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, author of the Politico Playbook. Yesterday, we heard that General Motors will cut up to 14,000 workers in North America and put up five plants up for possible closure. It's shutting down production of a lot of its car models and is a restructuring to focus more on autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. What else do we know about the big changes coming to General Motors? 
Yeah, they said that they want to make these changes when the economy is strong and they foresee economic trends hurting their industry a little bit so that they have to retool to get ready for the future. And they want to do that at a point of strength rather than cutting if we see a recession going on. So, you know, we've been calling it the Trump slump in playbook. He's worried that the economy is not going as well as it used to, that the stock market is so volatile, it's not just going up anymore. And so this is kind of a blow for him, considering that he's made jobs in the economy such a strong point of what he brags about. The CEO for GM, Mary Barra, said that the company has faced challenges from the tariffs that have been imposed, although she did not directly link a lot of these layoffs to that. I think they said that they've lost close to a billion dollars because of the tariffs. So it's hard not to imagine that that plays a part. But as you said, they are trying to get ahead of the game. They are shutting down production of a bunch of cars, but among them, the Chevy Volt. I think the Chevy Cruze is one of them. They say that almost 65% of new vehicles sold in the U.S. in October were trucks or SUVs. So they're getting away from a lot of these sedans and things like that and and moving more production into that realm of things. Yeah, and, and fewer young people like me and my friends candidly are actually buying vehicles. And so people are using Ubers much more. GM is seeing the writing on the wall. They were definitely also hurt by the, the trade tariff that impacted their bottom line. One billion dollars is not nothing. And so that's what has led Trump to react poorly in that he once considered Mary Barra a friend, an ally, raised her leadership. And now he's much more bearish right now. Mary Barra was a close ally of the president. She was there at a lot of those meetings with business leaders and things like that. And the president now has responded saying that he was very forceful with her saying, hey, if you guys don't have a car that's selling well, we'll get a car that is selling and put that back in there. You know, he's saying that they're just telling GM, you better get back in there. He's promised that he's going to bring some of these auto jobs back to Ohio, that they might be making an announcement. But there is no evidence that they are changing their mind on this. He told a GM plant in Ohio last summer, don't sell your homes because the jobs are all coming back. And now there's major uncertainty coming to these areas. A lot of the jobs that are being lost are going to be white collar jobs, about 8,000 there, over 3,000 blue collar workers, and then another 2,600 from Canada. Uh, And a lot of people have pointed to the tax breaks that GM received through the GOP tax bill last year. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of pressure the administration is trying to impose on them. They can't give them more tax breaks, or possibly they could, but what kind of pressure they're going to be trying to impose on them to help keep more jobs in the U.S.? This is a dilemma that states and localities and even the in the federal government in, in some ways always faces, which is how to keep in a jobs in the states without having to bribe these companies with billions of dollars in tax incentives that are, are borne by regular Americans or and companies that don't get these huge tax breaks. You know, a lot of economists have criticized states that have given huge amounts of tax incentives without actually getting that much in terms of real results. And so kind of a race to the bottom. A lot of these jobs are going to be in the U.S. anyways. And so states are just undercutting each other. And whatever state wants to spend more money keeping X number of jobs in their state instead of them going to the neighboring state, then that's how they get decided. But doesn't actually increase the net net of jobs in the U.S. So that's kind of a mini economics lesson to the to a debate that's really roiling economic development folks about should we really be using billions of dollars of taxpayer money and less tax spending into these states to actually get companies to stay. Daniel Lippman, author of the Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.